right, I'm sitting down here with John Thompson. How are you, Mr. Thompson? Doing well, thank you. Great. Well, thanks for coming out here today and uh, trekking through the the long drive to get out here to Joliet. (laughs) So we usually start these things off with a um, bio and a timeline. And uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, starting at the beginning of your your musical life. Well, um, the beginning was, believe it or not, uh, in the Salvation Army. Uh, my grandparents were Salvationists who came over from Scotland. And so my father, uh, this is on my father's side, thought about going into the Salvation Army for a while. So I actually played in Salvation Army brass bands in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, probably before I played in school bands. And uh, But I, I moved on to North Hills High School uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, actually in its way a very famous high school they played the midwest five times warren mercer uh, who became one of my mentors was uh, the band director there they commissioned i think by now something like 35 new compositions for band uh, over down through the years warren is gone but the program thrives it continues And Carnegie Mellon University was in Pittsburgh, and so it seemed like the right thing to do. Uh, My teacher taught at Carnegie Mellon University, so that that was pretty much my first choice. Mm. And I did my undergraduate degree in music education there and a second bachelor's in music performance. Trombone was my instrument, and... uh, Carnegie Mellon was a bit old school in the sense that they wanted you to be a musician first and a music educator second. And so you were accepted into the school based on your performance abilities. And it wasn't until the beginning of your second year that you were accepted into music education. Oh, wow. Very different than, okay. than other schools. But, uh, that be as it may, I, uh, I, I got a, a pretty good undergraduate education there. And uh, I remember Dr. Strange, Dr. Richard Strange, who most people will associate with Arizona State University. He was a director of bands there for a long time, past president of the American Bandmasters Association. But he was a Carnegie Mellon during the years that I was an undergraduate. And I remember uh, Dr. Strange calling me into his office one day and saying, go home shave, take a shower, get dressed up. I want you to go meet this guy who is a music supervisor at a local high school. East Allegheny High School was to become my first job out of college. And I really owe Dr. Strange for the connecting me with Michael Torino, who was a music supervisor. In Pennsylvania at that time, there were a number of jointures taking place where smaller school districts were combining, thinking that they could deliver curriculum better and things like that. And East Allegheny was exactly that. It was a jointure of four smaller uh, districts. Uh, One was in, of all places, Wilmerding, Pennsylvania, a home of Sammy Nestico, by the way. Oh, okay. In fact, I when I got there, I found manuscripts of Sammy Nestico's music, <laughs> a little bit like the history here. Yeah. Um, 
at any rate, the jointure had taken place. There was a new high school in the works, and it turned out to be a wonderful experience. I was there for 14 years. Um, then I moved on to Northwestern University. Oh, by the way, I picked up my master's degree at Carnegie Mellon okay. <laughs> during the year. I did it through the four summer program. They, okay. It was an accommodation for teachers who were working during the school year. So I, I picked up my master's in music ed along the way, and I got accepted into the PhD program at Northwestern. And I was to become uh, John Painter's uh, teaching assistant, one of his teaching assistants, member of the band staff. And I was for two years uh, a teaching assistant, taught classes, uh, worked for John on the band staff, a very formative two years. Mm-hmm. Then a similar story uh John Painter called me into his office one day, and he said, I know you're looking for college positions, and I was at that time, but he said there's a really good school nearby here you really ought to look at because they are um, hiring new staff, and they have a new mission. Mm -hmm. turned out to be New Trier High School, and I taught there for 25 years. So all of that math adds up to 40 uh, 40 years <laughs> in public education, although two of those years were at uh, Northwestern okay. as a TA. Uh, and then reti- I retired in 07 from uh, from Nutrier. And in the following years, I was an adjunct professor at Roosevelt University, where I taught uh, brass pedagogy. I taught secondary methods. I even taught a class called Instrumental Methods for Choral Ed Majors. Okay. Interesting class. They still have that class. I don't work for them anymore, but I do observe student teachers for Northwestern University, and I observe student teachers for uh, University of Illinois. And uh, so the Northwestern observations are usually in the fall quarter, and the uh, University of Illinois student teaching is usually in the second semester. Uh, For a very long time, I've been a contributing editor to the Instrumentalist magazine and new music reviewer. Uh, John Painter, uh, again, when I was one of his teaching assistants, said, you can write. You're a doctoral student. Would you like to do new music reviews? (laughs) And he was heading that panel at that time. So I came on. This is like more than 35 years ago. Uh, in fact, yeah, it's more than 35. And uh, so I've been doing that ever since. I got the title contributing editor somewhere along the line, but okay. I still do uh, new music reviews for them. And, and, and that's part of my uh, retirement package, so to speak. <laughs> I suppose the rest of the retirement package is judging. I work for two or three different judging associations. Okay. And so that's largely second semester work. And then... Uh, The rotation of guest conducting opportunities, uh, when they come along, you know, the phone rings, and if I can do it, I will do it, and happy to do so. So that's kind of a a timeline uh, of where I was and and where I am. (laughs) Yeah. Can we we talk about your mentors here for a minute? You mentioned Warren Mercer, Mm -hmm. Richard Strange, you mentioned John Painter as well. Um, what was something that you maybe took from each one of them or an example from 
from one of them that was helpful in your formative years. Interestingly enough, and anyone listening to this may want to access my website at some point in mm-hmm. time, it's johnathompson.com, all lowercase, Thompson without a P. And I have a page on there for my mentors. And um, I feel very strongly about establishing and maintaining connections with significant career people, mentors by any name. Uh, Warren Mercer was my high school band director. And quite simply, I wanted to be him. You know, when it was time to think about what I was going to do after high school, um, really, I wanted to be a high school band director from the time I was maybe 16 years old. And I learned a lot from Warren. He was very... uh, Ravelli-esque, okay. uh, hard-nosed, uh, very, very uh, severe kind of guy. I did not turn out to be that type of teacher, but but I admired him. His bands were fabulous, and I wanted to have one like that. Um, I mentioned Dr. Strange earlier because he helped me get my first teaching job, but he stayed part of my career uh, until he passed. In fact, when I played my first Midwest performance uh, in 76, he was my guest conductor. Mm. I, I looked nowhere else. I yeah. wanted him. And uh, Dr. Strange always called former students his boys. <laughs> Steve Peterson, by the way, who's currently at University of Illinois, yeah. was one of his boys okay. from uh, from Arizona State. Um I didn't mention him by name, but Philip Catlinay uh, was one of my teachers at Carnegie. And um, I suppose Philip's claim to fame was he was the tubist who premiered the Vaughn Williams Tuba Concerto. Hmm. He played in the, uh, uh, the London Orchestra that received the commission. And... Um, but he was a low brass person. He matriculated to Carnegie Mellon uh, from England. And when I got there, he was teaching. And uh, he became very important to me because he guided me uh, through my undergraduate years. His office door is always open when I needed advice along the way. Um, another individual that I had not mentioned yet, there were five, by the way, sure. mentors, Michael Torino. Michael was the music supervisor at East Allegheny, and he hired me out of school without any experience into this new jointure. And uh, I think he would later say that he saw something in me uh, that allowed him to uh, hire me. But the thing about Michael, that was fabulous. He was a very, very successful band director. One of those smaller districts that joined to form East Allegheny had played uh, at their own state festival. They called them adjudication festivals back in the day uh, in Pennsylvania. And uh, very, very well known. Uh, And what I think Michael did was that he allowed me to make my mistakes as a young teacher but made sure they didn't make them again because he would set me down and say, now this went this way because now you don't want to do that again. The other thing that Michael did is um, almost the first months of the school year, he said, uh, we're going to the Midwest in Chicago. I had never been. 
Okay. And so uh, he paid the way, or he didn't pay the way. The school paid the district for both, uh, paid the finances for both of us to go. And I remember having multiple gee golly gosh moments because I were hearing the I was hearing these fabulous mm-hmm. bands and orchestras, uh, and saying I want to have one of those one day. But I think in many ways he really lit the uh, the uh, the the desire in me to have a band that could be considered good enough to play at the Midwest. And I did. By 76, I took my Pennsylvania band to the Midwest. The East Allegheny band played in December of 76. Uh, Your ninth year teaching? Yeah. Okay. And to this day, (laughs) by the way, there are only two high school bands from the state of Pennsylvania who have ever played the Midwest. One was North Hills High School, (laughs) where I was a student, and the second one was East Allegheny High School, where I was the director of bands. I sense a pattern. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And then, of course, John Painter, uh, you know, I was, when I got to John, I had been teaching for nine years nine, ten years. Okay. Uh, so I think he approached it that way. He didn't approach me as a rookie. Um, he approached me as somebody who had experience. And and the way we met is kind of an interesting story, too, if, if you don't mind a slight digression. Yeah. The East Allegheny Band was scheduled to play at the Pennsylvania Music Educators State Conference. I got a phone call from one of the coordinators saying, we have a clinician who needs a band. Would you be the demo band? And I said, well, yeah, that sounds like great fun for my students. And he said, well, the clinician is John Painter from Northwestern University. And so John and I started to correspond. And we, in fact, were his demo band, which to... It really influenced my decision later on to go to Northwestern because the choices were Eastman and Northwestern, and I was accepted at both. But I knew Mr. Painter uh, and had a great deal of respect for him. I did not know Hunsberger at the time. And so, uh, although by reputation, he's fabulous. But but anyhow, that's how I wound up at hmm. Northwestern. To be clear, I never finished the degree. <laughs> I am what they call ABD, you know, all but dissertation. Oh, okay. I, I did the coursework, wrote the dissertation proposal, which leads to why didn't you finish? And I, it, I got the new true job. I got deeply immersed in it. We were building something pretty special there. My family was coming along. We had two boys. And I just could not come home at night at 7 o'clock and write a dissertation. It just mm-hmm. wasn't going to happen. And so somewhere along the line, I accepted the fact that I'll be terminal ABD. Sure. And it sounds like you don't regret that. I don't. Yeah. I, I don't. Uh, the two years that I spent with Mr. Painter were life-changing in a lot of ways. Uh, One example was that uh, Mr. Painter's degrees were in uh, composition and uh, not in education and and not in clarinet performance, although there are people out there who would tell you that's true. I know it's not. Um, So he had an understanding of the music from a structural standpoint uh, something I never got, you know, 
out of my undergraduate education, mm -hmm. uh, the ability to analyze and look at the sonic architecture and then use that as a tool to assemble performances. And so that was one of the things that was just transforming for me. And the other thing, interestingly enough, was the smaller band uh, approach. Um, Doctor Strange was always a big band guy. Yeah. Uh, his bands at Carnegie Mellon and later at Arizona State were always large symphonic bands, more out of the old uh, University of Illinois, uh, Michigan, mm -hmm. Wisconsin band, 98 to 100 players. Uh, and, of course, Mr. Painter by that time had become a convert uh, to the Fennell he never went to the 44 wind ensemble. Sure. His bands were usually 50-ish. Okay. Uh, he doubled tuba, double euphonium, that kind of stuff, But and bigger clarinet sections. But uh, hearing the transparency and the clarity uh, of the smaller band uh, was really appealing. Uh, so when I got to New Trier, I decided that I would have smaller bands. And so we had four of them. We had, we had four orchestras and four jazz ensembles as well. But uh, but I went. I sort of became more of an advocate advocate for the the smaller band. I, I like the clarity. I like the transparency. Uh, it's just there was a lot of good stuff. Do you think that? And this is a question I didn't ask you know ahead of time. <laughs> Do you think that ensemble size did that ever dictate the type of music that? you you wanted to play or you felt that you could play with it you know i have a very interesting answer for that and it's really uh what we were taught at northwestern uh mr painter believed that there were there were pieces that were really for small band okay and it was silly to try to play them uh, with a large band okay and vice versa and he thought that there were pieces that would work well Mm -hmm. uh, looking for an example, uh, he believed that the uh, whole suites could be played by a small wind ensemble or by a large symphony band. Well, and traditionally, that was their intention. wasn't the first one written for I don't know, 19, 21 players or something. It was a really mm -hmm. small group, I think. In the well, actually, the, the, first band, the, the first band that played Holst won, what, they were a small band. Okay. Absolutely. But more to the point is that he thought that there were many repertoire pieces. Now, where he would get really on his high horse is if he heard a small band play some orchestral transcriptions, okay. because he would say, they have no business doing that. <laughs> uh, I don't do a very good John sure, Painter, sure. but, but uh, he said, they have no business doing that. They have seven clarinets or eight clarinets. What are they trying to do that? Yeah. Um, and, and so he felt very strongly okay. about that. And he also thought that um, you should know what the composer envisioned because some composers will tell you, if asked, uh, yes, I wrote this for these forces. And uh, so that my answer okay. to your question is yes. And, and so when I would select programs, I would select a program that fit the vehicle. One okay. uh, guest conducting, doing an honor band or something like that. If, if there's 115 kids in the honor sure, band, sure. you do certain things. And if you're, uh, when I was working with my top group at New Trier, I, there are certain things I would not okay. program just because I didn't think it was appropriate. Interesting, though, a little sidebar. From time to time, about once a year, we would combine band one and two 
and combined being three and four at New Trier High School. Guess what we had? A large symphonic band. And so then we could do that repertoire. Uh, And so that gave the kids to experience an opportunity to experience those works that they might not otherwise uh, be able to experience. And that was and that was a more of a personal question here, because as I told you, our our top band, 75 players. Um, Alfred Reed works great for us. You know, John Krantz uh, transcriptions or arrangements work really well for us. But there have been times where we put, you know, what would be considered a modern wind ensemble piece. And it's like, holy cow, this is heavy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think it was important to Mr. Painter, so consequently became important to me that sure. when he had a lot of fairly strong feelings about programming as well, uh, and we may or may not get to that in their discussion, uh, but uh, I, I tended to follow most of those. That was another part of uh, how I changed. I came in the door at Northwestern with certain viewpoints, and I came out the back door with um, changed viewpoints in many ways. Well, let's talk about them now, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, Programming was important to Mr. Painter, and uh, he would have us, uh, as part of the doctoral seminar, write programs you know, he would give us a piece and say, build a good program around that piece, okay. that kind of stuff. He had lots of different ways to do it. But a lot of his programming ideas I came away with, you know, Mr. Painter believed really earnestly about having an opener that would really set the uh, pace for the program. Uh, that could be a fanfare. That could be an overture. Uh, uh, it could be a lot of different things. In fact, I would often open concerts with brass fanfares. <clears throat> uh, but he felt very strongly about that. <clears throat> he also felt that programs, the first half, should have a major work. He thought that whatever grade level you were working with, you should have a major multiple movement work. Okay. He also felt that you should do uh, legato cantable pieces. Every concert should have a legato cantable pieces. He actually called it introspective. He believed that every concert should have an introspective piece, which I took it to mean the kind of piece that opens slowly, closes slowly. Uh, and, you know, to Kelly and Eric Whittaker, the, uh, numbers of composers are writing wonderful pieces like that. And then uh, he also thought that every concert should have a march or two. Uh, He said that that is such an important part of the band's history that he felt that uh, marches should be included Mm -hmm. uh, as part of it. Um, The second half of a concert, he always thought should get lighter than the first half. But he felt very strongly about the first number after the break being the most challenging piece for the audience. (laughs) And so he would very often program something out of the intermission that would be provocative, sonically or new-ish, something that would challenge the, the listener. And then, as I said, the, the program would then get uh, lighter. Now, this is generic program sure, I mean, sure. I've been talking about uh, with his top wind ensemble uh, at Northwestern. He wouldn't always evidence exactly that. 
but but that was a pattern he thought for generic programming. And I think to my last concert, even today when I guest conduct and do honor bands and things, I still think I program that way. Okay. Uh, I've done four all states over the last number of years. And I, I think if you look at every one of my programs with the four all states, they would evidence uh, some contact with John Painter sure, sure. in terms of, of those. Um, he also felt, and, and I learned this way early, even in high school, about commissioning works. Okay. That we have a responsibility to enlarge the repertoire for the band. Now, if we're back in the day, in the 40s and 50s, that need was even more necessary. Mm-hmm. And bands had to play transcriptions, really. Um, and some would argue we don't have to do that anymore, although I would argue that there's still transcriptions that we should play. Festive mm-hmm. Overtures by Exhibit A. Yeah. That uh, that there there are transcriptions that are still worthy uh, for sure and others uh, just that as an example and so um and so i think that uh, that he would not be afraid to do uh, transcriptions is is what i was getting at uh and so i I tend to program in, in similar ways um the other thing i learned from mr painter again this goes back to the fact that he was kind of a theory comp guy mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he would always talk about why does this work what is this uh, sonic architecture is what I always call it but why does this work or why doesn't it work uh, what could we do to, to make it better because John was not above editing uh anything if he thought he could make it better sometimes as simple as an octave transposition or something mm-hmm. like that um, sometimes letting instruments out you know d- d- doubling unnecessary doubling that that uh, composers felt like they needed to do and john would say well wait we don't need them you know so we would not do that mm-hmm. um at any rate um I learned a lot of those kinds of things from here, which, by the way, led me to um, um, an approach that focused upon the students learning about why a piece works. Okay. And um, the vehicle that I used is called, uh, came out of the comprehensive musicianship era was called the unit study composition. Okay. And what I would do is probably once every grading period or at least a couple of times a year, I would select a piece for further study so that it wasn't just about learning the notes and rhythms for the next concert, but it was way more about using that piece as a tool uh, to learn things about the music. Uh, I've written extensively on this, and in fact, on my website are chapters from uh, resource books and articles in The Instrumentalist, and they're all there for someone who would listen to this and become interested in it. But uh, the unit study or unit uh, composition idea, unit study composition, um, my exhibit A will be variations on a Korean folk song. You can put variations on a Korean folk song into the folder and learn to play it, uh, get the notes and rhythms, and play it at a concert and move on to the next piece. And the student might not know 
that it's built on a pentatonic scale. What is a pentatonic scale? Why is that part of a Korean uh, music? They may not know that the folk song was one that was a Korean folk song that uh, John Barnes Chance heard when he was in the Korean War. And he brought it home and was so enchanted by the lyric and, and the melody that he built a composition on it. You might play the piece and not know that it's an exquisite form of theme and variations. And yes, they should know what that means and what makes a piece that. Not to mention inversion, retrograde and retrograde inversion, (laughs) because he does use inversion with some of the thematic material. Uh, And you could go on uh, uh, because there are other structural pieces that make it work. Well, I use that example because I think it's a particularly vivid one, but you could come up with that for so many pieces. Uh, What makes it work? What is happening architecturally in the piece? Does it have symmetry? If so, why? All all of that stuff. It goes back a little bit to that sort of Schenkerian analysis that we learned as undergraduates, you know, how certain pieces fit together, sections fit together, things like that. So I became... I wrote a major paper when I was a doctoral student at Northwestern on the whole comprehensive musicianship movement and the Hawaiian curriculum and all those okay. initiatives. And uh, it seems to have gone out of favor. Uh, I think bands and orchestras are pretty much back to preparing the pieces for the next concert. <laughs> but I do think that that it's alive and well in some camps. Okay. I, I do think that there are people um, – that are trying to teach in that comprehensive way, uh, which I felt set me apart in some ways from other band programs, uh, that, that it wasn't just about picking five pieces to play for the next concert. It was about f- picking five pieces that worked uh, in a way that I could use them as mm-hmm. part of the uh, unit study composition. Uh, the, the other thing, back to Mr. Painter's thinking, if I can find it real fast here, uh, choosing works that are, quote, good pieces, uh, technically appropriate to be sure. You know, we have mm-hmm. to be uh, able to identify what our band's can do mm-hmm. and yes challenge them sometimes but by the way not all the time uh, if if you have a grade four band and you always play grade four pieces they're spending a lot of time chasing notes and rhythms and not a lot of other time become comfortable with good intonation, good characteristic mm-hmm. tone, blend and balance issues, uh, shaping of phrase, because they're always after notes and rhythms. Yeah, yeah. And I would argue that if you're a grade four band, yes, stretch from sometimes, but also don't be afraid to do a grade three piece. Sure. Um, also, choosing repertoire from a broad historical base, and as I've already indicated, that includes transcriptions. I think there's wonderful, wonderful, you know, if we're going to talk about historical pieces, you've got to go to uh, some transcriptions. My example for this, and I I wrote this recently, which is why it's coming to mind, uh, there are a lot of fabulous preludes and fugues of Bach by Molman. Okay. And and uh, my favorite is the G minor, the B flat major, the B flat minor. But think of what you can learn doing a Bach prelude and fugue. Mm-hmm. Talk about structure, 
fugue, you know, the prelude. Talk about uh, 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 other structural aspects of a fugue. And so um, choosing repertoire from a broad historical base. Also choosing repertoire of varied structures, forms, and textures. Now, I'm a great believer in having soloists on a concert. I would rarely do a concert without a soloist. Okay. Uh, one of those reasons was texture. The texture for an accompaniment is a lot different than it would be for a piece without the accompaniment because obviously you're trying to feature the solo soloist. And would these be pros? I know you've had some guest artists. Would you have student features as well? Yeah, and, and we can talk about sure. that. Uh, my quick answer is all of the above. Okay. <laughs> and uh, we can go there next, sure, actually. Sure. Uh, and then I think, as I said a moment ago, uh, after you choose works that uh, are, quote, good pieces, technically appropriate, broad historical base, varied structures, forms, architectures, then the very, very special ones should become unit study compositions. Okay. And by the way, people might argue, and I've had people argue, say, I don't have time to do all of that. But, you know, the research and everything to put together lesson plans to do this unit study composition approach. But you know what? If you do it once, four years later, you can do it again. Yeah. You know, in fact, I built... A, a number of pieces that were my unit study pieces that when it was appropriate in the next mm -hmm. repetition. And Mr. Painter actually said that was okay because I said to Mr. Painter one time as a doctor student, I said, Mr. Painter, I'm starting to repeat pieces. Should I worry about that? Now, I'm going back in time to when mm -hmm. I was in the late 70s when I was his doctoral student. He said, John, that's a sign of maturity. Hmm. When you start to repeat it, how much did you bring to the table the first time you did Lincoln Shraposi? And I said, well, you know, I thought I brought a lot. He said, how about the second time? How about the fifth time? And I think that as conductors, we bring more to the table the second, third, fourth, fifth time uh, we do these important works. And we shouldn't consider that anything other than maturing as a conductor mm -hmm. and teacher. As a side note, I heard once about Frederick Fennell that every time he did a piece, he would keep his old notes in there, but he would date them. Hmm. You know, here's his fourth time doing the piece. Here's a different choice that he would make. Yeah. So it's, a, it's an interesting concept. We'll never get to this, but one of my first uh, <laughs> clinics that I went to after graduation was the Fennell Clinic. It okay. was when he was doing the calisthenics of conducting and then the aesthetics of conducting. And if, if we have time, it might be sure. worthy. But I, I, you suggested a little bit about getting back to uh, uh, the guest artists and things like that. And um, I had a guest artist series that I did. I would have guest conductors, guest uh, performers, and guest composers, mm. as well as alumni. And the guest composers were a result of our 16 commissions because okay. while I was at Nutra High School, we commissioned 16 works. Um, Bob Smith, uh, Andrew Boyson, uh, Timothy Marr, and those three came to mind real fast. Okay. But when they would come to Nutrier to do a residency 
and very often, if they were comfortable, conduct the world premiere performance. Now, some are, like Timothy, couldn't wait to get on the podium. Uh, (laughs) Other people, not so much. And so it was up to them to decide whether they they wanted to conduct or not. But, um, you know, I would have... uh, Timothy Moore, for example, and Andrew Boyce and Larry Dan, uh, Bob Smith, I, all composers that I commissioned would come to the world premiere, conduct or be in the audience, talk to the audience about the piece. And more importantly, who knows more about the architecture of a piece than the composer? Yeah. I felt it was win, win, win a thousand times when I would have them come into the classroom and talk about the piece. Hmm. Kids love it. They they were just so tremendously excited. Now, you have to have the resources to to commission works and things like that. And if we had time, we could talk about how I funded those, but we may not be able to go there. As far as guest artists, uh, I took advantage of the community. You know, Dale Clevenger had kids in the band, so Dale soloed twice with okay. us. Um, <laughs> Charlie Vernon's son, Mark, played in the band at New Trier, so Charlie soloed oh with us. Um, Jeff Bradetich is a name you may not know. He was oh. the string bass teacher at Northwestern. But when I did my first Midwest with my New Trier band, um, Mr. Painter, was. I asked him to be my guest conductor, and I said, what would you like to do? And he said, you, you want to live risky? <laughs> he said, I want Jeff Bradetich to solo with your wind ensemble. Hmm. Jeff was a string bass virtuoso, and we did one of those sort of theme and variation. It was actually a piece written for violin, <laughs> and he did it on string bass. It brought the house down. Wow. It was a challenge to prepare because it was very thinly scored and the kids had to be hyper aware. But what a learning cauldron yeah, that yeah. was, you know, to, to learn. Um, then I had alumni, you know, Fred Hemke Jr., because Fred lived in district. So his son, Ricky Graff, who played piccolo in the Chicago Symphony, his son, Ricky, played uh, as a soloist. Uh, Ed Reisinger. Ed is now the tuba euphonium teacher at... Uh, Illinois Wesleyan, and I had him back, and, and he performed. So there were a lot of ways you could find yeah, soloists, yeah. the composers. And then I had a lot of guest conductors, a lot of them through all the Midwest performances, because every time you do a Midwest, they want you to have guest artists and things like that. Sure. Well, John Painter twice for, for two of my uh, uh New Trier Midwest performances. Dr. Strange from my Pennsylvania band, Harry Bijan, did Armenian with us. Okay. It was a great moment. Uh, and I prepared them that when he, if he scolded them, it was only because he was so passionate about the music. Well, he was a sweetheart. Yeah. I mean, I, I think he was happy with the preparation or saw no hope in it. <laughs> but anyhow, he was as sweet as could be. Bob Reynolds, I had at one of my Midwest performances. Of course, Mallory Thompson. Paula Kreider was a clinician for the Midwest, not right before I retired. So I got a phone call. She says, John, I want your band to be my clinic band. Mm. So I went to my administration. I said, do you think I could take them out of school just for an afternoon? So we went down as the demo band because she wanted us. And of course, it turned out to be a great connection. Craig Kirchhoff was another one of those uh, connections through performances. I played a couple of MENCs, 
and we were doing one in Cincinnati. And Craig called and said, John, I see your band's going to be at the MENC. Would you do a clinic before your performance with me? I'm not going to say no. It's Craig Kirkhoff. So we had a wonderful experience with him. And, and you know, you meet these folks and you start mm-hmm. communicating with them. And um, uh, it, it, you may ask, what are some of the rich experiences of your career? Well, I've kind of touched on a number of them, but working with these highest level professionals, whether they're composers or artists, uh, is pretty special, Yeah, you know, and, and I, I enjoyed them. So anyhow, that's perhaps a little bit more, or I don't think we need more about the artist series, <laughs> but the commission series, yeah. uh, that started because North Hills High School, where I attended high school, that was important. And I was in the band when the first of the 35 or 36 or 37 commissions were done. And uh, I thought it was how exciting it was for me as a junior in high school to have the composer come in. So I commissioned one work at uh, East Allegheny and did the world premiere. And then I, all the other 15 uh, were all at New Trier. Yeah. And I think I've already uh, told you why I thought it was sure, important. Sure. Uh, and the other thing is, I, I think consistent with Mr. Painter's belief, you know, he thought it was important that we would bring new works, yeah. you know, and into into being. You know, that's, that's another thing, because I look at – especially of our, our sit down right now. And I, I think we're going to have to have a, a part two sometime if you're okay with it. Cause man, there's a lot of stuff and, and a lot of uh, helpful things. The, the programming information so far has been very, very helpful to me. Uh, but commissioning, that's, that's something a couple of our listeners have had some interest in. Um, we're trying to get one off the ground here as well. And, and I, I can just see the finished product. It'll, it'll be in the paper. The town will love it. The kids will get so much out of it. We'll have the composer here. But what's, what's some advice that you have for somebody trying to get that off the ground? I know you talked about resources earlier. Sure. Well, uh, first of all, you have to identify a composer whose music that you like mm-hmm and um, feel comfortable uh, entering into a a financial arrangement with them. Uh, To be honest, a lot of my commissions grew out of meetings at the Midwest. Uh, I'll give you one example. I walked up to the booth where uh, Bob Smith was, Robert Smith, and um, we started chit-chatting, and, and I mentioned to him that, uh, do you accept commissions? And I said, I would like to do one. And I wanted a concerto for percussion and wind ensemble. And his answer to me was, John, he said, you're not going to believe this, but we just had an uh, African percussion ensemble in residence at my school and I wrote down three grooves <laughs> and there they had a lute or wind instrument and I wrote the melody down 
and that became the slow section of Africa, which is now widely performed. Ray Kramer does it out with his all-state performances and things like that. And I get calls even to this day asking me about do I recommend buying log drums because it writes, you know, that he wrote for log drums. And uh, so – it may be the commission that is most often done uh, of the 15 that I did. Um, the one that's often done, high school bands don't do it very often, but university bands do it a lot. It's Sol Salator, The Son, the Comforter. Uh, Timothy Marr wrote that, and we wrote it for one of my deceased students who was then a student at St. Olaf. Okay. And uh, the morning I called him, I told him what I wanted. And he said, John, I I so want to do this. Uh, My first commissions were pretty informal, conversational, Mm -hmm. no contract. But as I went along, I got stung once, and I won't go into the details or mention names, but somebody made a commitment that they did not honor. And so then I... I did my homework and entered into a contract. Obviously, you have to establish the fee. Composers these days are by the minute more often than anything. And then they'll they'll ask you exploratory questions. What would you like? Uh, Who are your strong players? Uh, Because if I knew next year I was going to have a standout horn player, you know, you'd be safe and asking them to do that. And they don't always do it, but it gives them a place to start. Sure. Uh, when Scott Borma, uh, he was one of my commission composers. You know Scott? I don't know Scott. Uh, he's over in Michigan. He's doing the uh, one of the Michigan, uh, Central Michigan. Okay. You know, I think it's, no, no, it's not. It's in Kalamazoo. It's Western Michigan. Okay. He's a director of bands there, but also a composer. Uh, he became excited about the Trevian which is the Nutra mascot, okay. a Roman soldier, actually. Not everybody knows that, but a Trevian was a Roman soldier. And so he got excited about that, so he wrote this fanfare, and uh, it's angular, melodically kind okay. of Trojan-ish, I guess. <laughs> but it worked, you know, yeah. it, was a, it was a fanfare. And, uh, and so uh, being explicit, you know, by the time I did my last commissions, um, I had a— a model, mm-hmm. you know, and basically it was just fill in the blanks okay. kind of thing. But I, I would recommend that. Sure. Uh, I mean, it goes without saying you agree upon a price. Yeah. So in short, you agree upon the price, mm-hmm. get the contract going, and then, you know, it's your job to raise that money through mm-hmm. band parents or grants or something like that. Uh, yes, and, and all of the above. Okay. The, the the one thing that I did uh, that people listening may find interesting, my alma mater – Carnegie Mellon wanted new pianos for the studios. And so they, they did a buy a bar campaign okay. where somebody could buy one key for the piano. Sure. Times 88 was the piano. <laughs> and so I, I changed it from buy a key to buy a bar. Okay. And so I would break the cost down into the number of bars. Oh, okay. And I sold the, uh, I sold the bar. To people. And then some people would buy 20 bars and sure, some people sure. would buy two bars and some people would want to buy more. And so then in the world premiere, uh, in the program, you list everybody who helped you raise money. And to be honest, it's almost embarrassing. I would raise more money than I needed. Okay. 
it was tremendously successful. People just got excited about the Buy the Bar campaign. And of course, it's an affluent community and it's a way people felt. I, I, I don't know how that would work in, uh, you know, a different kind of school district. Well, and you might, I, I know sometimes schools will come together to do, you know, pieces, mm-hmm. which which would be an option. If you can't afford this, however, here's three or four other schools that can go in it together. Sure. You guys are still getting the piece. You're getting that experience. You know, there are consortiums. They're becoming yeah. increasingly more popular. I only did one. I got a call from uh, a university in South Dakota, North Dakota, and they said, we see that you do commissions. Would you enter into a consortium with us? But I get calls to this day. I'll get emails and communications saying, would you want to enter into consortium? I saw one just the other day. It was $150. Hmm. They were getting... 60 school. Now, the only downside of that is one of the agreements I would have, I wanted the right to the first performance. And if the work became published, and by the way, every one of my commissioned works have been published. uh, If it became published, I wanted it on the masthead that was commissioned by the Nutra High School Symphonic Wind Ensemble. Okay. And uh, if you'd enter into a consortium, you're not going to get the world premiere. Yeah, you may get the sixth world premiere, sure, sure. Uh, you know, and and I'm not poo-pooing the idea of a, yeah, of a yeah. consortium because let's say it's five or six, you know, let's say just to pick a number out of a hat, it's five hundred dollars each for six. That's three grand. You you could get a three four minute piece mm-hmm. perhaps from, and, and the other thing, you have to decide who you're going to commission. Uh, if you want to commission. Uh, someone who's very established, like a Frank to Kelly, you're going to have to book a couple of years in advance and you're going to pay big bucks. Uh, if you looked at my 15 composers, they were mostly always younger composers who were being discovered. Okay. And I felt <laughs> Frank to Kelly didn't need John Thompson to commission sure. <laughs> work, but, but some of these other younger composers were enthusiastic about doing it. I remember Timothy Marr was just so delighted to do Sol Salator. Okay. And uh, Andy Boyson was so excited to do Hands Up. And so uh, uh, there's there's more strategy to it than perhaps we can cover. But that's sort of the, the once over lightly yeah. with it. I, I think I, summing up, I think I got better at it as the years okay. passed. You know. well, I'm definitely stealing the buy a bar campaign, and we're gonna buy a note and buy a fermata and buy. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> you, you, anything else. you're welcome to the idea, and it's who you steal from, right? Sure, I mean, sure. I I stole from Carnegie Mellon University by the key, you yeah, know, yeah. and uh, and I just made it, you know, by the bar. But it was amazing how excited uh, the community got in that. We even got press for it. You yeah, know, yeah. Novel idea, you know. So all of this, um, I'm hearing your, your guest artist series, your guest conductors, there's commissioning, you're talking about comprehensive musicianship. So, of course, I'm, I've kind of got a clue about what you're going to say with this, but, you know, philosophies about band and music education, what's important and, and why, you know, for, for these students. A kid that graduates from New Trier High School, um, what, what would they say about their, their band experience under John Thompson? Well, um, I would hope 
that they would not be burnt out. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think a dilemma that my college buddies are telling me is that they are having um, difficulty recruiting high school players to play in their marching bands and concert bands, not music majors. We're sure. talking about my friends who teach at liberal arts schools and yeah. things. And kids are reporting uh, more often that they're burnt out. Mm. I had a friend uh, recently <coughs> call me and said, a girl showed up on my doorstep uh, at school. Uh, she talked to me about playing in the marching band. She had gone to school in Texas and had played in a Midwest and she said, you know what? I just don't want that pressure. I just don't want that heavy a commitment. Mm. I'm sorry, sir, I cannot play in the band. And so we were always very, very conscious about not overusing kids and not taxing them beyond a certain point. We had a routine. We had uh, what the year was um, stated the first day of school. And I would actually turn things down rather than add something to their schedule. Okay. Uh, and I think it's important that you give them the calendar, but uh, that uh, then you don't veer from it. Uh, I digress a little bit. The point, uh, uh, what would they say about playing there? I would hope that they have developed the ability to hear good music, to react to that music, to, to hear what's going on mm -hmm. in the piece. Uh, certainly a love of making music in groups. Uh, we put a lot of emphasis on, uh, on uh, uh, literacy. And so I would hope that they would feel that they were more literate musicians than they would have otherwise been. Yeah. Um, I suppose uh, uh, that's what I would like them to say yeah. about it, that they wanted more. In fact, I always took it as a compliment. My students would come to me sometime during their senior year and they say, Mr. Thompson, uh, I want to go to a, I want to go to a school that gives me opportunities to play. Well, you know what? There are schools, if you're not going to be a music major, you have no opportunity to play except sure. maybe in the marching band. And so I would help them. You know, I said, well, tell me where you'd like to go to school. And then I'd either do my homework or I would know if they had opportunities. I might even pick up the phone and call the band director and say, yeah. I've got a really good trumpet player who's going into engineering, but, you know, wants to play. And the, 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 my point being that, that they would have an appetite for more, which I took as a compliment to the program. Rather yeah. than saying, oh, no, I don't think I can do that anymore, I, would, I was always flattered by the fact that they were willing to move to the next step. Sure. Yeah, so you want the kids playing, you know, well, later on, adults playing. Lifelong music. Yeah, and, um, you know, I've, I've got the John Painter book in my office now, and he'll talk about the North Shore Band and community bands, and, you know, it, it was, what I read from him was a big part of the reason, yeah, we, we want adult musicians, we want to enjoy this, and then there was the other part that was uh, kind of funny, and I think about that, where we've got a big alumni base here, which is these people are taxpayers, and they vote on policy, and they're involved in music, and... <laughs> <laughs> they make some of those decisions for us. That's a that's a helpful little side note as well. Absolutely, we've not been able to discuss this. I mean, there are so many topics yeah. you can only pick and choose. But having active uh, parent 
support groups, yeah. uh, controlling them to be sure that they don't act out on you. But uh, but there's such an essential essential component. There are so many things that we would not have been able to do at East Allegheny and later New Trier if we didn't have uh, really active parents. So outside of New Trier, I know you've had a, a number of um, positions and involvement. You talked uh, about the instrumentalist, of course, and guest conducting jobs here. Um, and you've also been involved with Blue Lake. And uh, can you tell us more about that and just, you know, the, the benefits and opportunities you think that these these outside camps um, have for, for kids? Yeah, I, I did Blue Lake uh, 23 summers. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that I liked about, like, not liked, but like about Blue Lake, <laughs> is that they will accept any student with a conductor recommendation. Okay. Now, to be sure, as soon as you get there, you audition. Uh, they have what they call color bands, uh, the red, white, and blue bands, and the younger players go into those bands. And by the way, it's not blue is better than red is better than white. They would actually alternate. So if they oh, had okay. if they had ten oboe players that were going in the color bands, they go red, white, blue, red, white, blue. Okay. So those bands were relatively equal. Okay. And I did the uh, um, color bands for a number of years, and then I got the symphonic band, which was the second band down, and eventually I got the the symphonic wind ensemble, the top band, and I I conducted that for about my last 10 years there. I also did the staff band, which is actually a fabulous group. All the counselors that are hired for the summer form a staff band, Okay, and they're all music majors. And they're from important schools, and they play pretty well. And you only would get two or three rehearsals with them, and then you'd have to perform. But I very much enjoyed doing the staff band. You know, it was my chance to work with collegians, for sure, one thing. Sure. Um, I even did the, uh, the faculty band. They call it the festival band one time, which is the adults. And they, they, they play in symphony orchestras mm-hmm. around the country. I got to do festive overture with them one time, <laughs> which was a hoot. It, it was great fun. Um, I did the international band one year. Uh, Blue Lake sends a band, an orchestra, a choir, and a jazz ensemble to Europe every summer for a three-week tour. And I did, I think it was 96 or 95, somewhere in there. I did uh, the international band. Fabulous experience. All home stays. And we were in a number of, of European venues. Okay. Uh, we arrived in Germany and left from Germany. But in the process, we were in Denmark and Belgium and Holland and uh, a touch of France and, of course, Germany. Mm-hmm. Oh, did I say Denmark? Yeah, I did. They have a northern tour and a southern tour. Like the Bavarian tour would have been fabulous. I didn't. I never got to do that okay. one, but I did what they call the northern tour. And uh, so I believe in the philosophy of the band, uh, the camp. Yeah. And uh, to generalize to summer camp experiences, uh, for the most part, uh, I would encourage – summer camps. Um, a lot of my new true kids would go to Interlochen in the summer mm-hmm. and they'd come back energized and yeah. tell me we ought to play this 
fabulous work, you know, and this and the other thing. Um, and, of course, Northwestern, a lot of my students would go over there in the summer, the Cherub program, and Blue Lakers. I always had a number of Blue Lakers. In fact, I had seven new Trier kids went on the uh, the international band with oh, me, wow. which was kind of fun. And uh, we had a great time. But uh, And there are so many camps. Uh, I, anybody listening to this who would have an interest in it, the Instrumentalist magazine publishes mm-hmm. every year a complete by-state listing of sovereign camps. Yeah, I always make a photocopy of that. I don't know if I'm supposed to, but I do, and, and email it out to the parents and these highlighted ones. Absolutely, and uh, I think I would not send a student till I knew what the camp was about. Sure. You know, there are flute camps and trombone camps and every, every order, orchestra only yeah. and jazz only. Uh, but the common denominator is that they almost always come back energized from that experience. And they're, they're more attentive and more focused and more alive yeah. than they would otherwise have been. And so I, the, the only comma but <laughs> was that um, at least at Nutrier and schools like Nutrier, summer school was not remedial. Oh, okay. Summer school was something that the students would take so that they could get courses out of the way so they could get to the more advanced courses. Mm. And so um, there were kids who would say, Mr. Thompson, I just can't go to sure. Blue Lake or Interlochen or wherever. I got to take advanced calculus take advanced calculus yeah, yeah. because if they went to camp, they didn't take advanced calculus. They may not be able to be band. in the band and orchestra yeah. next year. And so, uh, you know, you have to wade in a little bit sure. to make sure, but for the most part, I, I'm yeah. enthusiastic supporter of, of camps. I'm showing my, my ignorance here and I'm sorry. And I don't want to put you on the spot. John Barnes chance, blue Lake overture. Is that any relation to it? Yeah, he, okay, uh, John exactly. Barnes Chance wrote it for Blue okay. Lake. That was a Blue Lake commission. I remember playing that a few years ago, and I, I've never heard it since. Mm-hmm. I've never seen it programmed. It's since. my least, <laughs> it's my least favorite of John Barnes Chance, and I I love his writing. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, but that's my least favorite, and I would bet if there were such a way to measure it may be the least, least popular probably. because incantation and dances mm-hmm. i love it when i did the michigan all-state band a couple three years ago i programmed it because i knew that they could play it and they sure. could play it well and uh you know all the densities i yeah. knew they could pull off with a couple of rehearsals and uh, so um yeah, that was a that was a Blue Lake commission. <laughs> All right. Well, to close out here soon, I know there's there's just so much stuff, and as I said, I'd love to sit down for a round two someday here. Um, but uh, you said you go out and you observe student teachers for Northwestern, mm-hmm. and uh, so you're you're still involved with that. What advice would you have for for some new teachers in the field, based on what you see and based on uh, some some current trends? Well. Um, that really is on my mind lately because it's one of my major responsibilities now is working with uh, student teachers in the field. And um, uh, this is not in any particular order, but one concern I have uh, is that music education curriculums are very, very crowded. And so the attention spent on developing secondary instruments is 
at best superficial. Okay. I heard a story recently, true story. A young gal um, was auditioning for an elementary band job. She was a horn player. Her teaching demonstration was to teach beginning clarinet. Could not assemble the instrument. Mm. So uh, what I tell my students, I cannot change the undergraduate curriculums at Illinois and at Northwestern and used to be Roosevelt too. Uh, I cannot do that. But what I tell them is that it has to be their responsibility to develop their secondary instruments. Sometimes when you first start teaching, you might have to be two days ahead of the kids, you know, in in the method book. But some graduate programs will allow you to put some discretionary credits towards taking lessons. Uh, Actually, University of Illinois, I had two of my University of Illinois students this past spring. One was a brass player, one was a woodwind player, and they gave lessons to each other. Find your best bud. And I think they were, you know, flute and trumpeters. And and they were helping each other immensely. Sure. You know, Um, you can just do so much, and it's. It, I think when you graduate from an undergraduate education, uh, they call it commencement, meaning you're ready to begin, but you're not fully formed. You're just <laughs> yeah, not. Yeah. You know. Uh, the other thing I tell them about their first job, uh, because they're all going to be looking for that first job, uh, and I tell them to follow the evolution, not revolution, okay. approach. For example, and I'll use myself as an example. When I started at East Allegheny in the fall of 1967, uh, I inherited a marching band that largely did step two line movements and things like that. Well, I I wanted to evolve them and to something else, to, to go beyond that. And I got, if I heard it once, I heard it 30 times, that's not the way Mr. would have done it. Okay. And you cannot take that personally. Uh, that's what they knew. And so nor do you say that that person was wrong. I've heard stories of where a person goes from one clarinet teacher to another, and the first thing the clarinet teacher says is, oh, you've been taught all wrong. Mm. I've heard university teachers do that. Never. That child possibly had an allegiance to that teacher. In the case of a band director, they may have had an allegiance to that band director. They don't want to hear the new band director say he was all wrong. So it's evolution, not revolution. And uh, when I got to New Trier, it was the same thing over again, that the person who preceded me uh, would have done things differently. And I heard a gazillion times, that's not the way Mr. Boba would have done it. Well, that's okay. Try it my way. Sure. You know, and... uh, I had a friend recently who told a story about his first job audition. He went to a job, and the superintendent asked him about his marching band philosophy. And he said, well, I'm, I don't believe in competition. I think uh, marching band is a seasonal activity and, and, and seated to lay it right out. Yeah. And the superintendent attendant listened uh, quietly, and he said, well, sir, I, I think we were looking for, and then said what he wanted, which was a competitive marching band and a <laughs> very active march. <laughs> and so, I mean, he was out the door. Yeah. And so, um, of course, that's another subject. Know your homework when you go to a 
to an audition, know your homework. But uh, back to the point, it's evolution. You know, you can take kids from one place to another in a gradual, progressive way. Okay. And and uh, to tell any student that their teachers were wrong uh, is not going to win points. And the, I think the new teacher sometimes looks arrogant or worse mm. uh, because they would say that. Sure. Uh, there's a fairly lengthy <laughs> list of, of these kinds of issues. Uh, another one, because uh, I know we have to sum up, but burnout. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that um, I think it's important, particularly with young teachers, that they have balance. That the, to the degree that they can, that they maintain balance. Uh, you're going to have this issue. Uh, I had it as my boys were growing up, balancing my family life yeah. with my personal life. And when you're teaching like you are here or New Trier, there's no bottom. You know, there is just no bottom to what I can do that day. Sure, I just have sure. to decide what I can do and what I can't do and and to make sure that you do everything that you can to balance your life. And uh, there are people who get burnt out and they become less good at what they do or they become snarky and negative, and that doesn't influence kids well. Uh, so uh, I, I, I really think that's important to maintain a balance. You know, if you have to take a summer off, take a summer off. Mm -hmm. You know, after you teach 10 years, if you don't have a master's yet, it's, it's getting late. Take a sabbatical, yeah, you yeah. know, or, or uh, of course, this so nicely segues into clinic summer workshops and things like that, and because uh, again, you don't know everything you need to know. Profession is changing and oh. evolving, and going to summer workshops and things like that, whether it's part of a master's program or whether uh, or an advanced degree program, or whether it's just going to do experience clinics with important people. Um, do it. Sure. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for coming out here. The The website, again, is John A. Thompson, no P, dot com. Yeah, and there there are no dots in there either. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's John just A. Thompson. All lowercase. And, um, you know, it's a great resource. I mean, you can spend an afternoon on that, you know, of course, looking at your bio and what you've done, but also your, your contributions to the field. And um, I, I think it's just a great resource for any band director or music teacher that's looking and say, like, okay, how can I really make a difference? How can I be an effective educator for my students? What can I aspire to? So, you know, I, I thank you for that resource out there, and I hope people will, will check that out. Well, thank you. I, a lot of the things that's in there, I had colleagues in mind. Yeah. I, I list repertoire, for example. Not that you should do my repertoire, but these are repertoire choices and and uh, some of my writings mm -hmm. uh, for, uh, for as chapter submissions or articles that I did for the instrumentalist. I have the right to put them on. Yeah, yeah. So you have the right to read them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, it's a, it's a great resource. And, and especially too, you know, when you're, you're, you're teaching and you're out there in the field and, and sometimes you, you need help and the Midwest Clinic is not around the corner and you're the only music teacher in the school. So it's, it's nice to turn to some of those resources there. So, well, thank you for sitting down to talk with me. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks.